At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Matthew Rayford, the James Beard-nominated chef, or chef farmer, as he says, behind the cookbook Bress and Yam, Gullah Geechee Recipes from a Sixth-Generation Farmer. So this book is full of stunning recipes, like two-day fried chicken and buttermilk griddle cakes with muscadine jelly, and we will talk about plenty of those in this episode. But I think I might have loved reading Matthew's stories even more. Because he and his family have been stewards of their land since his great-great-great-grandfather, Jupiter Gilliard, established the farm in 1870. And Matthew swore at 18 years old that he was never going to come back to the South. But after spending a decade in the military and then going to culinary school at the CIA and living and working all over the world, he found himself drawn back to the farm anyway. Now, I am someone who has tried and sometimes failed to record and preserve my own family recipes. So I really connected with Matthew's mission to document the dishes and stories from his and also make space for the history that is unfolding right now on the farm. Here is Matthew for more on that. I grew up working inside of a Piggly Wiggly grocery store. Mm -hmm. So I worked, yeah, it, that is a thing. Whoever's listening, Piggly Wigglies are still a thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I grew up inside a grocery store, but the produce section wasn't but so big. It wasn't like big like they are now, right? Everybody that went to the store, a lot of people were always, you know, some people grew tomatoes, some people grew cucumbers, some people grew this, that, and the third. And we didn't really we didn't really go to the grocery store to buy a lot of vegetables. You know what I'm saying? Because it was all being grown. And so it wasn't until I was well past the age of 18 that I started to realize like, wow, everybody goes to the grocery store to buy all their food. Like I didn't, I just didn't know that. I knew people went and bought canned goods and rice and, you know, dry goods kind of a thing, but not everything, you know, toilet paper, of course. And so now, you know, fast forward to where we are now, I'm realizing that I grew up with an amazing food system. I grew up eating peas and uh, corn, like fresh, not sitting inside the grocery store. And you think it's only been, you know, harvested a week or two ago. I'm talking like crack it off the stalk and like roast it, you know, crack it off the stalk and put it into a crab oil, crack it off the stalk and just boil it with like some fresh butter, you know? So I grew up eating like that. And then you know, realizing that I can help control a better food system, coming home was just, I mean, for lack of better words, it was a no-brainer. You know, <laughs> when the opportunity presented itself, it, it it was just amazing, you know, for my Nana to say, what are we going to do with all this land? 
and I jump in and well, I kind of look at my sister and feel that overwhelming sensation. Um, like the ancestors came over me and I just said, hey, you know what? We should go back to farming. And I haven't stopped since. What led you to write this book? And what was the story that you wanted to tell about Gullah Geechee food? Ooh, that's that's a big question there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say the, the first thing is I want to write a, a cookbook about a sense of place of mm-hmm. where I came from, what it was like for me to be of African descent and being raised um, in the deep south. And mm-hmm. I also want to make sure that people understood that food from the African diaspora is not a monolith that is ever changing, it's ever moving based on the place that you end up. And that is what really Gullah Geechee food is also, because, you know, it's kind of interesting. I always tell people, like, I, I didn't grow up eating shrimp and grits. Mm-hmm. However, I did grow up eating fried fish with stewed okra and tomatoes over grits for dinner. When you look at my recipes, they are from my part of the diaspora, not anyone else's, per se. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to also show that Gullah Geechee food is also part of our comfort food that we eat across the United States that we call our comfort food, that, you know, there's not a major city in the United States that is not trying to have the best Southern restaurant around. That has been a trend that has been ongoing for almost 20 years now. It's like no other trend, right? There's a lot of food trends that have come and gone. But when it comes to comfort food, like, I mean, think about how many biscuit places have popped up, right? And people always Mm -hmm. consider biscuits to be country. People want to feel some sort of comfort and food is one of the ways to do it. And then having the foods of your grandma or your Nana, you know, or of of your auntie or, you know, your uncle or who, or whoever grilled or barbecue people want that in their life more so now than ever before, because we need to feel some sort of comfort. Um, And so I'm just seeing me writing the book the way I did. Um, and, And just so that everyone knows, like I wrote the, book the book came out this year but the book was written you know a year before that and then Mm -hmm. there was another almost two years of me like putting everything together and sitting down with the writer Amy and I um, making sure my voice was was carried through with uh, in the book so this was not not like uh, for lack of better terms an overnight thing uh, where Mm -hmm. I just woke up one morning stroked it all out on paper typed the rest (laughs) of it in the computer sent it off and someone was like great book let's sell it you know <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it's it, it's a process and it takes time and so that's what i wanted the dressing yam to be about which you know in Gullah Geechee means bless and eat and that's mm-hmm. what i wanted the book also to be is a blessing to anyone that happened to read it i wanted people to eat from the book and i wanted people to like take in those stories that are inside of the book you have learned how to cook from so many different resources over your career, your family, culinary school, being a chef in restaurants, and now farming and exploring your family's archives. I would love to hear about any of those sort of aha moments that stand out in your memory in your cooking life that have changed the way you cook, either from you know early in your career or even recently. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've really learned, a lot of people have changed within their eating habits meat being like Mm -hmm. a main component of everything they cook and I remember the very first time I made collard greens with no meat like Mm -hmm. zero meat and no one knew it 
it all came from me trying to figure out the smokiness level that things like smoked meats gave, whether it be smoked turkey or smoked ham hocks or anything like that, or neck bones, whatever anyone might happen to use. And when I first started doing it, it was kind of like, oh, just put in some smoked paprika. That should do it, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. mm, still not smoky enough, right? It didn't have that. Mm. It's just like smoked meats give any food that it adds to like this really pronounced. Mm-hmm. Like a really deep smoke flavor. Yeah, deep smoke flavor. And it almost, and the meat is really a side piece inside of those things. And so what I started doing was I started first using Montreal steak seasoning. And the mm-hmm. steak seasoning itself, when you grind it, the volatile oils that are inside of it become more pronounced than just the steak seasoning when you first smell it. And so the very first time I did it, I used Montreal steak seasoning in the traditional way um, with some apple cider vinegar. I also roasted off some garlic and caramelized some onions so that I could get that additional level of sweetness and uh, bite that I was looking for. And then from that, I started understanding what smoked salts, like an alderwood smoked salt would do. And so I started combining and using those types of things and not just smoked paprika or even chili powder to try to get to that smoky, Mm because those also have a different kind of smokiness that they add. But what I started doing, I started making a combination of those, those ingredients to make food have that smoky, meaty type of uh, taste to it without Mm -hmm actually using meat it's really proven to be an amazing thing to under you know also understand how to use fresh and dried herbs and what happens when you take them and do some of the exact same things get those oils moving that are in or in place and get them incorporated into your dish i've been using lots of culantro in a lot of my dishes that i want to have this next level herbaceousness too because when you think about it's one of the primary ingredients in sofrito it imparts not a cilantro taste per se. To me, it imparts more of a, a herbaceousness that that is kind of like top of the tongue kind of mm-hmm. a thing as compared to like, you know, I, I hear a lot of people that, that say that they don't like cilantro because of the soapiness of it. And I would say, well, use cilantro because I, I've never gotten that um, from anyone. I've even used cilantro when I've done stuff like guacamole and things like that. And I've had people be like, oh my God, this is so good. Like, I don't even like cilantro. And I was like, well, good, because there's none in there, you know, mm-hmm. like that. So I think those two ways of like learning how to uh, manipulate food and flavor have really been my most biggest genius points, you know, uh-huh. is just trying to look at food in a different, in a different light. Hey, it's Kristen. If you are enjoying this chat with Matthew as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent conversation with the host of the Smart Mouth podcast, Catherine Spires, about breaking news in Girl Scout cookies and her favorite rule-defying baking tips. In the second half of this episode, we get to hear about more deliciousness for Matthew. Molasses pound cake, grilled watermelon, and oysters on hot tin, just to name a few, and how he decided exactly what belonged in his cookbook, Bresenium. Meet you back here for that. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And the way that the chapters are broken up by the elements, the earth, water, wind, fire, nectar spirits, yeah. um, why did you want to break it up that way? And I'm actually curious if you have like a favorite recipe. I know it's a lot of chapters to go through, but like if you have a favorite recipe that you feel like really embodies each of those chapters that would help us understand them. I think my favorite still is Effie's Molasses Pound Cake which is my mom's pound cake recipe that she ended up making because she ran out of white sugar and mm-hmm. had some brown sugar and was like, I'm not going to go to the store to buy any white sugar. I'm just going to go ahead and use this brown sugar and a little bit of molasses. So that is one of my favorites. What's What does the texture of that one come out like? Oh my God, it's, it's denser than a regular pound cake, a little uh-huh. bit denser, but it has that uh, molasses sweetness to it and it's still it's still like pound cake you know it's very much so like pound cake but it just has that uh that taste where you can like really taste sugar so it's like unrefined sugar so if you can imagine that kind of like burnt but chocolatiness is kind of what it in, in embodies on the tongue wow and how do you like to eat it do you put anything on it or just eat it by itself Ooh, I would put like a blueberry glaze on the top of it, um, which just kind of sends it into another realm. And uh, or southern huckleberries, which are the precursor to the blueberry, cooked down. Depending if you were up north, I would do like a lingonberry jam. That would be amazing. Or some blackberries. And if you really, really, really want to do it during the you know earlier part of the year, I would definitely say a strawberry syrup. Yeah, definitely, definitely. In the fire chapter, I think the I think the whole hog, I think, is my favorite out of that one, because when you see the pictures of it inside of the book, it actually invokes the time of year. And back in the day, our hog killing time was mostly in November. And then we, you know, dig this huge pit and like really put it down on a piece of metal and then kind of cover it and let it cook over those coals and all of that overnight. And then the next morning, we kind of open it up, let it finish, and uh, and then go from there. When mm-hmm. um, I have a two-day marinated chicken that's inside of that area of the book. And what's really interesting is my conversation about the fact that back in the day, you wouldn't just fry chicken to be frying chicken because a hen gives you an egg every day. So that's a protein source every day. So you wouldn't just go out and go and say, oh, you know what? Tonight, we're going to have chicken. We're a family of four eight pieces of chicken is not enough. You you know, you need at least two, three chickens, right? You're not going to get rid of, of a protein source that's giving you an egg every day. So what normally would be is an older hen. 
And because it was an old hen or an old biddy, as they used to call them, you would have to get that marinade so that that meat would break down. So henceforth, the buttermilk and the hot sauce and all those kinds of things. And then let's see, what have I missed? Oh, the water. Oysters on hot tin, which is an old school way to cook oysters where you create a big heat source under the bottom mm-hmm. uh, and put a piece of tin. You put all your washed oysters on the top and then you throw a croaker sack or burlap sack over the top that was wet and then as they would pop they're ready you just go and you barely have to even use your oyster knife to open them up the rest of the way the brininess is still in there and the salt yeah it's just oh i'm just loving it (laughs) so the that sack that gets tossed over the top is that just to kind of help them steam so they pop open yes it helps them steam and it still leaves them super plump on the inside So instead of like sitting them on a grill and then having to do all the like hardcore shucking, you do that and they'll pop. Literally the the, the lips of the lips of the oyster just kind of like pop open and they're ready to eat. Earth for me, I love roasted vegetables, but I think what I really love is the grilled watermelon salad with the mm-hmm. sangria vinaigrette. It's so funny when people see me do something like grill a watermelon, they're like, I would have never thought to grill watermelon. And I said, well, think about the juiciness, the sugars that are in watermelon. Like one of the reasons we like things that are grilled is because we like that char of the sugars that are inside, whether it be meat or vegetables or whatever. So when you char the outside of that watermelon just a little bit and add that sangria, it's just leftover wine, right? So you mm-hmm. a little bit of leftover wine that, you know, you add a little bit of acid to it and some olive oil and, and some heirloom tomato. It's, it's perfecto. Wow. So what happens to the the watermelon, like the flavor of the watermelon when you grill it? Yeah, it gets extra sweet. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um. So the old school thing, you know, like I, I always hear people talk about, yeah, I always put salt on my watermelon and I always go, oh, do you know why you do that? And most people like, because that's how the watermelon gets sweet. And I'm like, yes, because salt is a flavor enhancer. Mm-hmm. So if you put a little bit of salt, even on an apple, when you bite into it, it's going to be twice as sweet or twice as tart, depending on where you, what kind of apple you have, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the same exact thing happens when you grill an apple, right? The sugars that are in it get intensified because of that serious amount of heat on this. So that's the exact same thing that happens to the watermelon. The intensity of the sugars that are in there get all kind of like bound up in that area. Wow. That's, I wouldn't have expected that. That's so interesting. Getting out the grill this week. I'm curious, too, how you decided on the balance of these recipes, Um, you know, how many you wanted to go back to your family and how many you wanted to bring in inspirations from your own work and your travels. Yeah, you know, I I tried to balance that out by thinking about also the sense of place, like where we are as a community of eaters, um, where we like old things, but we also like spins on old things. And then we like brand new stuff. So what I did was I tried to break it into like thirds mm-hmm. to where it was like a third of things that came, you know, directly from family recipes. Right. And then a third of something that was kind of like my spin on something that was kind of like a family recipe and then take the full deal and take those things that I'm like, like grilled watermelon salad, right? I took creative license to kind of like, hmm, if I did a grilled watermelon salad, what would it be like? Or if I did a watermelon salad, what would it be like? And I was like, oh, grilled would be nice. Hmm. With heirloom tomatoes. Okay. So you got the acid from those really nice heirloom tomatoes. You got the sweetness from the watermelon. 
you have some nice little bit of microgreens that are in, whether it be a radish or broccoli or kale or whatever with those microgreens are all in there for their herbaceousness. So then you got all those flavors that are like mending. That is kind of a more modern thought process to putting a recipe together. So that's kind of how I, I think I really ended up getting to where we were or where we are at this point. And um, yeah, that's, that was fun. That was super fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then they even take uh, my grandpa author's candy yam recipe. I literally had to call all the family and do stuff like I called my sister one time. It was like, okay, do you remember if he put the the sugar in now or whether he put the lemon in there or was it just orange or, you know, like, I, you know, I was having all those conversations, you know, I talked to my mom, I talked to my cousins. I was like, do you remember, did it have this kind of a taste? And they were like, well, it kind of tasted like, you know, so there was a lot of those kind of things because my grandfather had already passed, but I've been making these candy yams of his for so long that I was like, then like, okay, now if I put it in this book, it, I got to get it as close. You know, I had creative, I felt like I had full creative license when I was just doing it. Right. But when I put it in the book, I was like, I need to get as much input from the family as possible. So there was also some of those things, too, where I was like, uh, got to make it right. But that sounds so rewarding to have the excuse to talk about that with each of your family members. Like, yeah. Triangulate and get the whole picture of it. It was like me trying to figure out past, present and future. And if it all was to mash up to one big thing, what it would it become? And henceforth, you got the book. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Matthew Rayford, sixth-generation farmer, chef, and author of the cookbook, Bress and Yam. And by the way, Matthew has so many new projects in the works. He's working on a second cookbook and a children's cookbook, and he's producing Gullah Geechee gin and some other spirits to really embrace all of the things that you can produce and distill from a farm. And his wife, Tia, and his sister, Althea, are also starting a butchery program through the farm in 2022, reflecting the history of women-led butchering on their farm and in their community. This week's show was put together by Cora Lee, Amy Schuster, Ben Acevedo, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a genius recipe that reminds you of home, past, present, or future, I would always love to hear from you at genius at food52.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes, and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us is to take a moment to leave us a rating or review or send this episode to a Montreal steak seasoning fan in your life. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week.